2 Kings chapter 16, and we're going to be in verse 14 again. And although we began to study last week, we studied verse 14, I'd like to start again at the beginning of the verse because that's going to be a great review for us going forward. 2 Kings 16 verse 14. And this is speaking of King Ahaz. And he brought also the brazen altar. That means the altar of brass. Which was before the Lord from the forefront of the house. From between the altar, now that's the altar of Damascus, and the house of the Lord. And put it on the north side of the altar. So now Ahaz is moving unauthorized furniture into the house of the Lord or into the courtyard. And if you'll notice in the verse, it says, and he brought also the brazen altar. That word also, we're going to look at for just a moment. There are all kinds of things wrong with this. As we noted last week, King Ahaz had no business bringing that altar anywhere. That brazen altar was to be left in its place. And I read to you from Numbers chapter 1 last week, or chapter 1 verses 50 through 51, that the Levites had been appointed to take care of that altar. They were the ones before the temple was built, they were the ones who would move the altar from place to place when the tabernacle was in the wilderness and it would have to be taken down and set back up and taken down and set back up when God moved the children of Israel. And in fact, that verse, those verses told us that anybody who came near to that altar besides the Levites would die. Oh, you'd think that would stick with somebody if they saw the death penalty attached to that sin. So who moved the altar? It was the Levites. They were the only ones. And they didn't move the altar whenever they felt like it. They moved it when God moved Israel in their journey. And this is back before the time we're reading about in 2 Kings. And once the temple was built in Solomon's day, if you remember, we studied that when we studied the life of Solomon, who was one of the many kings of Israel and Judah. And when we studied Solomon, we looked in detail at the building of the temple. And that temple was a stationary object. It was big, it was glorious, it was heavy, it had foundations, and it was not to be moved. So in this case, Ahaz risked his life, and he also risked the life of those who helped pick up that altar and move it. Even a Levite. If King Ahaz would have said, hey, Mr. Levite, whatever his name might be, I want you to move that altar over here. Well, the Levite should have answered him, King no way. God didn't say to move it. We're leaving it right where it is. It doesn't matter whether you're the king or not. And that's the way God's word is, by the way. It doesn't matter 
who you are, it applies to you. And there will be many in that white throne judgment day who will try to appeal to the Lord and say, we've done this and we've done that and this other in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. He won't say, oh, you must be the king of Syria or the president of the United States or the prime minister of Israel. He's going to say, I never knew you. Now, in our text, it said, and he brought also the brazen altar. The word also is part of the verb that's translated as the word brought. They're together. And because this verse speaks of the brazen altar as well, the word also is a proper word because there are two altars now. There are two altars in view. And that's the brazen altar and the altar of Damascus, which is simply called the altar in this passage. So this brings us to a second problem. The first problem was King Ahaz had no business moving the altar anywhere. The second problem is that the brazen altar was to be in a certain place in relation to the tabernacle. It was to be on the east side of the tabernacle before the laver. Now you may remember if you've studied the Old Testament and studied with us in the book of Exodus that the laver was a big basin or a big pot, like a wash tub, like a number two wash tub, except it's a whole lot fancier than that. And there was water in there. And after you passed by the brazen altar, then you came to the laver or that water pot that was sitting outside of the entrance to the holy place. And none of that's going to make sense to you if you've not studied the tabernacle. But I'm going to give you a clue. If you will go on Facebook, not now, and you will listen to Brother Fulton's teaching from Genesis to Jesus is what it's called. Starting lesson one, you're going to learn a whole lot more than you knew before you came in here. Not just about the tabernacle, but that'll help you understand the tabernacle a little bit better. It's not an in-depth study of the tabernacle, but it's enough for you to understand why we would be talking about it in the first place. So this altar, brazen altar, was supposed to be in a certain place on the east side. And as you walk into the courtyard, that would be the first piece of furniture you'd see is that brazen altar. And that is so critical that it be the first one. But now there are two altars. In fact, in the courtyard, there were no other altars now, inside the holy place, there was what was called the altar of incense, and it had a specific purpose. But there were no other altars outside, and certainly not near the brazen altar. Let me read the translation from another translation, this same verse. It says, And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed, Ahaz, removed from the front of the house from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. So now he's got the audacity to move it to the north side of his altar. The altar of Damascus was originally set east of the brazen altar. So at that time, Ahaz didn't actually move the brazen altar. He just put another altar on the east of it. He put one before it. 
So if you entered the tabernacle on Mo- in Moses' day, or you approached the temple in Solomon's day, the first piece of, piece of furniture you encountered was that brazen altar. And by the sacrifices that were made on that brazen altar, access was made into the holy place. And then into the most holy place once a year by the high priest. But without a sacrifice on that brazen altar, Israel would not dare approach that tabernacle, that holy place. So when Ahaz placed the altar of Damascus before the brazen altar, what he effectively did was to put God's or man's commandment before God's commandment. That's what he did. That's what you should be learning here. And so by the positioning of that altar of Damascus, a person would be led to believe that he must first satisfy the requirement of the altar of Damascus before he could proceed to the brazen altar. The brazen altar represents the cross of Calvary where Jesus died. And it is through that altar... Calvary, the cross. It's through that altar by faith that one must approach God. You don't have any other way. Now, Christian, can you imagine if there were an altar that stood between you and the cross? Well, many religions have placed an altar before the cross. And that altar somehow qualifies you to approach the cross of Calvary in the, in the minds of those who practice such religions. And this brings up a very relevant point. In our day, there are many religious organizations who call themselves churches or fellowships or assemblies or congregations and so forth. And almost all of them will tell you, oh, we believe in God. And they even give a hat tip to the Bible when they read their carefully selected verses that don't upset the apple cart, the verses that sound good to everybody, to the saved and the lost alike. Here's one for you. If a preacher tells you, you can't be saved. In other words, you can't go to that to the cross, to the, the, the brazen altar represents. If a preacher tells you you can't be saved unless you're first baptized here in water, then that preacher has placed an altar to the east of the brazen altar. He's placed it to the east of where Jesus died on the cross so that those who want to be saved who are told, yes, you have to go to the cross, but you first have to be baptized... And then they go and get wet, presuming that qualifies them to go to the cross. That's just another altar. And in God's law, there was no altar east of the brazen altar. And there's no altar east of the cross on which Jesus died. There's a religious congregation in Dallas. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called the Cathedral of Hope. Sounds like a great name, doesn't it? We love hope. Jesus is our hope. But it is a large congregation 
that by their own mission statement primarily ministers to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. And their conditions for joining that church include taking a class and signing a covenant. Nowhere in there is repentance and faith ever mentioned because those would require an acknowledgement of sin. And I tried to find a copy of their church covenant and I couldn't find it. So I have no idea what it looks like. Now, to truly minister, now listen good, to truly minister to someone who is lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, you need to preach God's word to them, all of it. To truly minister to drug addicts, you need to preach God's word to them, all of it. To truly minister to adulterers, you need to preach God's word to them. How much of it? All of it. It doesn't matter what the background of the person is, what their particular sin or sins are. They need to hear the whole counsel of God's word. That's the only way they can be saved. Because if they believe in another gospel and another Jesus, and which is not another, then they're condemned. They're in their sins. And the problem with the Cathedral of Hope is not that they minister to people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. It's that they don't tell them the whole truth. That's the problem. And I suspect the covenant a person has to sign to join that group says the same thing as their bylaws do. Now their mission says, quote, Our mission is to proclaim Christ through faith, hope, and love. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? Sounds great. But listen to what a quote from their governance page says. Quote, we are a diverse community that emphasizes inclusion and welcome. End quote. That's what their emphasis is, is inclusion and welcome. And nowhere on that page could I find a requirement for a person to be born again by faith in the finished work of Christ. Nowhere. So even though they say they proclaim some sort of gospel, it's another gospel, isn't it? If it doesn't involve faith toward Jesus Christ. And if they have another gospel, it means they have another altar, just like the one Ahaz had. Now what is our emphasis at Central Baptist Church? It's to preach Christ and Him crucified. It's not inclusion. It's not welcome. Now, let me tell you, we are some of the friendliest people you'll ever meet. We don't shut our doors to anybody. If they want to come in here and listen to the Word of God, we want to teach it to them. And we'd like to talk to them afterward if they want to. Now, we're not going to let anybody come in here and act a fool and disrupt our services. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if somebody says, well, Andy, you don't understand my background. I don't need to. (laughs) I don't need to know. I don't want to know your background. I might not be able to forget those things. So what you need is God's word to be taught to you, and I'm willing to do that, and so is our pastor. So we welcome people to come hear God's word, but our emphasis is not on inclusion. It is on the preaching of Christ and him crucified and all the truth that proceeds from the Bible. And you've been with us, if you've been with us long enough, you know that when we come 
to the hard passages in the Bible, we don't skip over them. We go right into them. We get to plow out and get it down deep in the dirt and spend as much time as we need there to try to help you understand what is in the text. There's no altar standing between the entering of the courtyard and the brazen altar at Central Baptist Church, and by God's grace, that's the way we're going to keep it. Now look back in your text again in verse 14, where it tells us, And he brought also the brazen altar which was before the Lord. Now look at this part. From the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. All right, that second part there, or third part, from the between the altar and the house of the Lord. And it says, and he put it, that word put, we're going to look at. He put it on the north side of the altar. So do you see how this has progressed? Ahaz is not content just to move his altar in front of the brazen altar. Now he moves the brazen altar completely out of the way and puts it over here on the north side. Boy, the imagery there is sickening. So now the brazen altar is no longer before the temple. It's no longer in the way. It's not part of going into the temple. It's over here. It had been moved to the side. It's been moved, as you might say, out of the way. I hope this is registering in your spiritual brain here. Let's understand how this went down. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 14. Now, if you're new studying with us, don't try to turn there. You can write this down if you'd like in your margin or in your notes. Um, that way I can go ahead and read it. Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 14. And this is where Isaiah wrote about Lucifer when Lucifer was still an exalted angel in heaven. He said to Lucifer, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will also ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. And the word high there is capitalized. He's talking about God. Now, who's the only one who sits on the mount of the congregation? That's, the, that's a picture of one who is above everyone else. It's God. There's not a place next to him for another God or an angel or any, anyone else to sit. Now, we're talking about God in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God expressed in three persons. But Satan, or Lucifer, had no room. He had no chair up there, if you can picture that in your mind. He said, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. And just like the altar of Damascus sat also in the same general location as the brazen altar, first to the east of it and now to the side of it, Lucifer said he would sit also on the mount. In other words, Lucifer implied that there is room enough for the two of us, God and Lucifer. And Ahaz's actions here implied there was room enough for two altars, his and God's. Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High. What an irony that is 
Because God's position as the Most High means that everyone and everything else is below Him, or He can't be the Most High. They're not next to Him. They're under Him. So for Lucifer to be like the Most High, he would have to become the Most High. There's only one way to be like the Most High, and that is to be the Most High, to replace the one who is the Most High. He would have to move God out of the way, somewhere over to the north side. And Ahaz was not content for his altar to be separated from the tabernacle by this brazen altar. He didn't like that brazen altar being between his altar and the entrance to the temple. So he just moved the brazen altar out of the way. And to him, his altar became the most high. Do you see what he did here? At first, he, he said, hey, I'm, I'm not touching your brazen altar. I'm just putting a newer one here alongside of it. A nicer one, more up to date, more relevant. One that people might understand better. Because that old one is ancient. But now that it's been moved over here, Ahaz could say, okay, I know I moved it, but hey, I didn't get rid of it. I didn't get rid of it. It's still there if you want to go over and use that one. And man, I have seen this happen in churches most of my life. When I was a little boy, my papa was a Baptist preacher. And he's the one who instructed me in the way of salvation and under whose ministry I was saved when I was 13. And my papa loved the people, but he was conservative and he was strict about what kind of music the church played and allowed to be sung. And we had hymns in the church and we had the old quartet songs. And he did not like this rising tide of contemporary music church music because in those days it sounded too much like the worldly music in that day and some of it still does some of it's beautiful but some of it you listen to the whole song and you just may never hear a word about Jesus or the Lamb of God or the cross or God it just sounds like a, a rock song with different words to it or a love song with different words to it and my papa didn't like the, the long hair on the male singers and the kind of clothes they wore. He was very conservative. And I don't know how old I was when churches began having two services. One was called the contemporary service. And then there was what was called the traditional service. And so what the the pastors did what the churches did who began adopting that style was to take the traditional service and put it real early like 8:30 well who's the only one going to get up for 8:30 that's the old people just getting down here where the rubber meets the road and so the traditional service drew mostly older members and by the way that's the rock of your church not I mean Jesus is the rock but the, the core of your people if you've got somebody who's been a member of your church for 30, 40, 50 years, that's, that's your core right there. That's who you look at. What are they doing? Where are they going? Well, they've been moved to the side, haven't they? 
They've been moved out of the way. And in the 11 o'clock hour was the contemporary hour, and that generally attracted younger, more hip crowd. But what did it also attract? The children. Because the, the elderly people, their children had grown, and they've had kids and grandkids and all of that. And so it not only brought the younger crowd in, but it subjected the children to this also. Now, the alarm bells should have been going off in these pastors' heads. And I blame pastors for the trend more than I do anybody else. Just like Uriah the priest who allowed, who did exactly what Ahaz wanted him to do, these pastors from way back in the 60s and 70s and all the way forward, if they would have just said no, there's no reason for us to change any of this. Is there... My question would have been to the one who says, hey, let's get the contemporary stuff going here. My question would have been, what is wrong with what we're doing right now? Okay, we're, we're preaching the Bible. Are we still going to do that? Yeah. Is there anything wrong with the, the hymns in the hymn book? Is there, is there a particular hymn we're singing that is unscriptural? No? Okay. Is there anything we're doing in the service that's unbiblical? When we pray... When we greet one another and encourage one another in the Lord? No. Then why would we need to change? Well, you know the reason? Well, you'll get more people to come in if you'll, if you'll kind of update your service. That's not the kind of people we want to come in. If somebody can't humble themselves to come into the Lord's house, and instead of worrying about the style everywhere, and, uh, well, you know, now we can wear shorts and a T-shirt to church, or now we can... Uh, play this kind of music and it sounds a lot like the rock music we like and maybe that'll attract more people. That's not who we want in the church. We want somebody coming in here who wants to be taught the Bible. That's it. And like I said before, we don't care what their background is. What they need is the Word of God. Many of those churches who went to this two-service model ended up eliminating one of the services. Can you guess which one that was? the traditional service. And so some of those churches, and I've seen them right there in Rockwall County, where I'm from, it used to be called such and such Baptist church. Now, I'm not all hung up on the use of the name Baptist, especially if the doctrine is ungodly. But if a Baptist, we're independent Baptist church, and if a Baptist church teaches God's word like it's supposed to be, there's no reason to change the name. But if they call themselves the Lord's Church or Believer's Chapel, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I want to know what they're teaching. But these churches that I'm talking about, one of them called itself First Baptist Church of such and such city. And then they changed their sign to say the first word was fellowship. Fellowship at First Baptist Church, such and such city. Do you know what they're called now? Fellowship Church. They just slid the Baptist out of there for whatever reason. And, and they're contemporary. They're quite contemporary. But the pastor's forefathers who started that church and continued it and brought it to the new building, no doubt they would be horrified at what they've seen because along with that you know what comes next when when the music 
begins to appeal to the world to try to bring them in, then the message has to be contemporary as well. The message has to change. If you tell people, if you tell worldly carnal people who are more interested in whether your music at church sounds like the one they listen to on the Good Times radio, if you tell them, hey, come in, man, we've got some really cool music we play, okay, and they listen to it, and then you take a Bible teacher who gets up there and teaches just like it is, they won't be back. They're not coming back. They're not interested in God's Word telling them that they're wrong about their sin and that they need to come into agreement with God and confess that, yes, I am a sinner. I'm guilty. And to be accepted by God, I have to do what the Bible says. I have to believe on the one who died for my sins. Carnal, worldly person doesn't want to hear that. So to keep those people around, the message had to change. How do you think the Cathedral of Hope would have had the audacity to form the type of organization they did and boldly proclaim some of the unbiblical beliefs they hold? First, the altar was put to the east of the brazen altar. Then the brazen altar was moved out of the way. And now it's not even in those churches. Second example. I'm giving you this because you need to keep your eyes open. You need to watch and listen what's happening around you. When you leave this auditorium today, if you're a Christian and people ask you, well, uh, what kind of church you go to? What kind of church should I find? Or, hey, you should come to my church. You need to know these things are going on. The pastor of an independent Baptist church I attended many years ago, many years ago, decided our church needed to have outdoor games like volleyball during the Sunday night worship time, and which I was shocked when it happened. I'm not shocked about stuff anymore, but I was shocked. I was a younger Christian, and his reasoning for having those outdoor games was that it was too expensive to run the air conditioner in the church building during the hot summer. And Oh, he'd give a five-minute devotional out there under the trees and everybody in their lawn chairs trying to pay attention while traffic's going by and squirrels are running up and down the trees. You couldn't hear anything. He'd get that in there so we could say we had church. And so I had a meeting with him, and I said, Pastor, I will pay the difference in the light bill for keeping the air conditioner on after Sunday morning service through Sunday night. I'll get brother so-and-so who was our treasurer. I'll get him to show me the difference in the bill, and I say, I'll write a check every month in addition to my tithes and offerings so we can come back in here and resume. Now, you would have thought he'd say, well, praise God, brother. Thank you, thank you, and let's do it. No. His answer to that was, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say we have to have two services on Sunday. And it doesn't. And I thought, aha, that was the real problem. He didn't want to have Sunday evening service. Now, if it, we don't have Sunday evening services, but we never did replace ours with something carnal. We have, uh, Pastor and I, and this, we made this change during covid 
trying to reduce the number of times we got people in here, and we agreed that if we'll devote our study time to the, the two messages he preaches and the one I preach once a week, if we'll devote our study time to that, we'll increase the quality of those teachings and we'll be fine. But what we didn't do is go, you know, back when we used to meet in the morning and have lunch afterward and then have a lesson Sunday after the meal, let's keep doing the morning church and the lunch, but after the meal, let's go out and, and play uh, field hockey or something or let's do donuts in the parking lot i mean it's all just as useless when it compares to god's word we didn't do that but that's what this pastor did he didn't want to have sunday evening service the altar of damascus in that case was a volleyball net and a yard full of lawn chairs and i'm tired of holding it in i love these people who i'm talking about some of them have passed away. Some are still alive. But I'm in disagreement with their decisions on those matters. And one last example at my last church, whose pastor I dearly love in the Lord, our monthly Sunday fellowship, we had one, one a month, and it was followed by a song and then a message from the Bible. But that message began being replaced with movies and the straw that broke the camel's back for me was when we played Sergeant York rather than having God's Word preached. <laughs> I don't know how I sat there the whole time. Probably trying to recover from shock. And I, so I approached my pastor and I thought maybe he's overwhelmed because he worked a secular job and I offered to preach every time we had that afternoon fellowship just give him a break if he didn't have time if he felt pressured to try to do his secular job and also get all the studying done and so you know what his response was the next message he said there are some people who need to learn to stay in their circle of concern and without using my name it was very clear that in his mind I was out of line and it broke my heart because I really believed that that pastor loved to preach God's word more than life itself. He would say that. And I still believe he does. I believe he loves God's word. I believe he's saved. But Satan got his way in that case. And it wasn't long after that, Brother Fulton called me. Boy, God's timing's just perfect. And he said, would you think about coming here to be my associate pastor? I'd have been in the yoke with Brother Fulton a long time, and he'd been my pastor long before he knew he was my pastor. And thanks to the agreement of this church and moving a couple of things around, that's what happened. That's why over 10 years later, we're still coming out here. And I thank God that our pastor refuses to replace the teaching of God's Word with volleyball or movies like Sergeant York or any other altar of Damascus. And the lesson here is this, because I was talking about churches where we had Christians, and at least one of the pastors, perhaps both of them were Christians. But those altars of Damascus can creep into the Lord's church before you know it. So don't say, oh, Brother Andy, this doesn't have to do with us, with our church. It does because you have to stay on guard, both the pastors and the people. 
And that, I have no doubt in my mind that my last pastor is a Christian, that he loves God's word. And I'm not here to bash him, but to warn you. We don't have to worry about where to put the altar of Damascus if we never let one in the door in the first place, do we? Whether it be in the church or in our own lives outside the church. Let's examine something else this verse shows us. Verse 14, look back at the text and it says, And put it on the north side of the altar. Now that's what King Ahaz did with the brazen altar, the one that was supposed to be on the east side of the temple. He put it on the north side of the altar. What's the action verb here? Put. The word put. And who was the person responsible for the action of putting the brazen altar on the north side of the altar? It was Ahaz and whoever's help he enlisted. Not only did he have no business touching the altar, but Ahaz had no business putting it anywhere. The word put in this text is the translation used for a Hebrew word that is broadly used in the Old Testament. It's used a couple thousand times in the Hebrew. But it's also translated as the word set, like when you set the table. It's translated as the word give and then other similar words. The first use of it, and this will hit home. The first use of that Hebrew word translated put is found in Genesis chapter 1 verses 16 through 18. Genesis chapter 1 verses 16 through 18 where it says, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them, that's the same word put, God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So in those verses, you notice, number one, it was God who put or set the greater and the lesser lights in the firmament. Only God had the authority to put those lights there because he was their creator. He didn't have a middleman to decide where to put the lights. He put them there. He didn't give the job to an angel. He put them there. And this was before he created man. And secondly, God had two purposes for putting those lights where he put them. To give light upon the earth and to divide the light from the darkness. If you walk into somebody's house, let's say they have an old house and it's after a rainstorm and you see a bucket in the middle of their kitchen, whoever put that bucket in the middle of the kitchen set it there for a purpose. And they set it right there. Do you know why? Because they had to come in and mop up a bunch of water that was coming through the ceiling from a leak. So if you were to go in there and say, oh, that bucket doesn't belong there. It belongs over here and put it in the corner. Guess what you just caused? Water to leak on the floor. They set that bucket there for a purpose. Whether you knew what the purpose was or not. And God set those lights, the greater and lesser light, in the firmament for a purpose. And when the verse said God saw that it was good, 
That lets us know that God was pleased with the lights he put there, and he was pleased with where he put them. He put them exactly where they needed to be. Now, we have enough trouble with the sun causing skin cancer. Actually, the sun doesn't do it. It's us getting out in there and uh, whatever genetic factors go along with that. But can you imagine if God put the sun closer to the earth? Why, nothing to be here, would it? What if he put it further away from the earth? Then everything freeze to death. So he put it right where he wanted it. In fact, he put all the planets and the stars exactly where he wanted them, and he created their orbits. And nobody else gets to mess with that. We couldn't if we tried, could we? And where God, where God put the lights was just as important as the lights themselves. Had God made the greater and lesser light and put them in a place where they could neither light the earth nor separate the light from the darkness, the lights would definitely not have benefited the earth or the creatures that were on it. It would always be dark, the plants wouldn't grow, and the people couldn't see. And there are all kind of spiritual truths that are represented by these passages. Let me share one with you. One of the many names by which Jesus is called in the Bible is the light of the world. And in John chapter 8 and verse 12, it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, because Jesus is the light of the world, he gives light to the world just like the sun gives light to the earth. And the world, in that sense, is speaking more of all the people in the world, the world system, the world pe- world's people, not necessarily the, the grass and the trees and the oceans and all of that. Now, God has given his son who gives light to the world. Now, the light of the world is important, but where God put the light of the world is just as important. What if God put the light of the world on Pluto? Jesus, because he was God, could have lived his whole life on Pluto. But that would have done us no good. Because we don't live on Pluto and we can't live on Pluto. So when God put or sent Jesus to earth, he sent the light that would not only give light to the world, but also would divide the light from the darkness. Just like the lesser and greater lights God set in the firmament would give light to the earth and would also divide the light from the darkness, that's what Jesus did. So it was important that not only he was the light of the world and is, but that God set him, put him, sent him to the very place he sent him. You know, Satan could not cause Jesus not to be the light, but he certainly would have preferred that God not put him on our planet. Satan would have loved it had the light not come and led people out of darkness. 
If God had granted Satan one wish, I believe Satan would have said, don't send the light of the world to the earth. Just send him somewhere else. And that's what Satan says to the churches as well. Hey, don't, don't preach the light of the world. You're going to make people mad. Just tell them they're fine. Bring everybody in. Change what you have to change. Be, be one with people and all of that. So from this, we learn that where God puts something or someone is for his specific purposes. So who is man to try to put something somewhere besides where God put it? Concerning man, as we close, here are two verses to consider, and then we'll jump on these next week. Genesis 2.8 and Genesis 3.15. And Lord willing, we'll read those and expound upon them next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the members, the visitors, both here and online, who set aside this part of their day to hear God's word taught. And Lord, we know they come with different needs, but we know the need that we all have, and that is to hear from you, to study your word, that the lost may be drawn to the saving work of Christ, and that the Christian may be built up in the faith so that we may walk according to our profession of faith and be a witness to others and live lives that are pleasing to you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.